<coughs> Sorry. All right, uh, let's jump into uh, the Book of Esther again. Um, you've joined us, if you've joined us for the first time, um, this is our fifth, sixth, fifth week um, in the Book of Esther. Uh, so I think we're actually smack bang in the middle of the book itself. So uh, let's open it up uh, to chapter six, shall we? So the Book of Esther, walking with God in a world that does not. Uh, chapter six. We'll start uh, from verse 1 and we'll end at verse 13. So the book of Esther, chapter 6, verse 1, all the way down to 13. Uh, I'll read it up for us. Uh, Please follow along as I read and uh, we'll be using the English Standard Version. Verse 1. On that night, the king couldn't sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles... And they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Well, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Well, who is in the court? Now... Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's men, uh, the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, well, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Well, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, And he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This is the word of God. Have you uh, ever snuck into the middle of a movie and not know what's happening? I must confess, back in high school, um, I did this once, um, before I was Christian. 
I'm sure Christians have done this too. We finished our movie and we thought we'd be super cool. <laughs> so we snuck into you know, one of the other doors on the way out. And we were clearly not good at this. We weren't experts, right? maybe like some of the other ones of you. Uh, because number one, uh, we didn't know what movie it was. I'm sure people who know what they're doing sneak into good ones. Uh, we snuck into, uh, it happened to be The Grinch. Right? It's a movie no one should ever watch. Right? Uh, number two, uh, we were not good at it because we snuck right into the middle of the movie. And so we had no idea what's happening, right? There's this green guy, that's Jim Carrey, and I don't know, his Christmas stuff. And so five minutes after sneaking in, we snuck back out, <laughs> right? And we went home, defeated. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, or it's been a while since you've been here, uh, that's how you might feel today, right? You've snuck into the middle of a series, uh, going through Esther, it's the fifth sermon. And we're really at like the high point of this uh, series, of the book. It's the climactic point. And we've kind of been in the climactic point for the last couple of weeks and next week as well, and maybe the weeks to come. Um, there's just a lot going on, a lot of action. And so I'm going to give us a little bit of a recap so we're all on the same page, and then we're going to look at Haman today. Now Esther, whom the book is named after, uh, was a Jewish orphan nobody. And in the beginning chapters, we saw how by God's hand, this Jewish orphan nobody actually becomes the queen of Persia. She becomes the wife of King Xerxes. And King Xerxes' right-hand man is a guy named Haman. He's the second most powerful man in the empire and arguably in the known world, so he might be the second most powerful man in the whole world. And Haman gets angry at a guy named Mordecai. He gets angry at the Jews, and so he convinces the king to wipe out all the Jews. Right? Who in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, they're actually God's people. And Esther happens to be a Jew. But nobody knows it in the palace because she's kept it a secret. And so this puts Esther at a crossroads. What is she going to do? Is she going to stand with God and God's people and say, I'm a Jew, protect my people to the king? Or will she hide who she is, stay under the radar and try to just protect her own life? And that's kind of the crossroads that she was at. And we saw that two weeks ago. To make matters more complicated... If anyone approached the king without being summoned, no matter who you were, the one law was that you would be killed. Unless he gives you grace and extends the scepter. So that's the default. If anyone goes to the king without being summoned, you're dead. But Esther is thinking, should I go? I'll die. Or should I stay quiet and maybe live? And so last week, we focused on the decision that Esther made. She decided to anchor her life on God. To count God as most precious to her, even if it means that she would lose her life. You are more important to me than even my life. So she said, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to go see the king. Right? I'm sold out for you, God. Right? That's kind of where she was. And this changed everything, I said. Her, her courage changed. The way she talked changed. We found her blossom into the final fruit of who she was. This person who used to be a nobody is now surprisingly has risen to become a queen and now she lives and speaks like a queen. Because she's anchored her life on God, right, it changes everything. And today we're going to look at Haman. And Haman's story is like you take Esther's story and you flip it upside down. It's the polar opposite. If Esther's story is a person who went from the lowest of lows to the greatest of heights... Haman's story is a person who was at great heights but has a spectacular fall. 
right? If Esther's a person who anchors a life on God and therefore everything changes, Haman's a person who refuses to anchor his life on God and really pursues other small gods, right? Idols, we call them. And his life goes to ruin. Haman's life is a life where he loves idols, right? Idols are things that we love that aren't God. We're meant to love God. We're meant to value God above, above everything else. But whenever we love or value anything else more than God, right, that becomes our idol. And that was Haman's problem. He didn't turn to God. He turned to his idols. And his life falls apart. And we see the idolatry in Haman's life. And we will see it in our lives in two ways. Right? They're the first two points we're going to look at. And then I've got a third one. The first one is instability. And when we look at the story, we see instability in Haman's life. And that's a symptom of when we have idols in our lives. When we were first introduced to Haman back in chapter 3, right, we were shown immediately that he's a person who loves to be honored. Right? And that, that's what I think his idol is. He just loves. He loves himself. Right? Often our idols are ourselves. We, we want to make ourselves maybe comfortable. We want to make ourselves seem powerful. We want to make ourselves rich and buy things. Or I think in Haman's case, he loved to be honored by others. And we saw it in the way that he reacted when Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him. He became the second most powerful person in the Persian Empire. Everyone was bowing down to him. Right? He'd made it. Right? This is the highest position you can get to, right? Unless you become king. But he's not going to probably not become king unless he kills the king. So he's at the top. Everyone's bang, bang down to him except this one guy, Mordecai. So how does he respond? We saw in verse 5, Haman was filled with fury. He's like burning with anger that this one person would not bow down to him. And so it leads Haman to, to as I said before, he convinces the king to wipe out all the Jews throughout the kingdom. I remember in high school uh, when I was in year seven, there were some older Korean people, because I'm Korean, and they would really want us to bow to them. I don't know if your school was like that. But, uh, like we, we, we're Korean, yes, but we speak English. We were listening to Tupac. and we're, we're not very Korean, but they really wanted us to bow down to them. And some people, you know, they didn't care about this. Other people really cared about this. Like if you didn't bow down, they would get furious. And sometimes I think, why does it matter so much to you that we bow down? What is it in you that needs this so much? And as we look at Haman, who has all this stuff, but this one guy's not bowing down. What is it in him that needs this so much? It's his idol. And what we see is this instability because it is his idol. It matters so much to him that when he's dishonored, it's able to make his emotions rise and fall. And that's what it is with us, right? When we have idols, they're able to make our emotions rise and fall. It makes us unstable. And so in today's passage, we see that continue on. We see uh, Haman begin with a high. Right At the end of chapter 4, uh, Esther threw a banquet and a feast for the king and Haman. She'd approached the king, and the king allowed her to live. And he said, what do you want? And instead of saying, save my people, she kind of does this cunning thing, and she says, come to my feast. I want to throw it for you and Haman. And so the king and Haman, they go to this feast. And at the feast, they're enjoying their time, and the king asks again, what do you want? 
And she says, come to another feast I'm going to throw tomorrow. Right? And so then Haman's going home. He just enjoyed a feast. He's going to have one tomorrow. And he says, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Why? Verse 12, he explains, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also, I am invited by her together with the king. For a person who wants to be honored, there's no greater honor than to be invited to a feast with the king and the queen. Wow. I'm pretty good. I'm the man. I'm 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 Haman. I'm the man. Anyway. He's walking on clouds right now. Just imagine him like skipping home, like singing under his breath. This this is how he is. Right? Because he loves to be honored. And so if something honors him, he's full of joy. But then look at what happens. Straight away, he hits a low. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. One moment he's filled with joy, next moment he's filled with wrath. Why? Because this is so important to him, it can make him fluctuate high and low. And he does a 180 degree emotional backflip. But then, verse 12, 10 to 12. What does he do? In order to feed that idol, he goes home. He brings all his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Verse 11. And Haman recounted to them. I love this. He recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, right? Because sons, were, were, back at that time, they were important. They carried your name and lineage, etc. All the promotions with which the king had honored him. And how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king, right in verse 12, and that he got to go to this feast and he's got another one. Right, so he's like, he feels dishonored and he's like, oh, I've got to make myself feel better. So he invites his best friends and his wife. He makes them sit down and he's like, let me talk about myself for the next three hours. And he's like, oh, you know, I did this and I achieved this and look at my trophies and look at my medals and, you know, did you see this photo with the queen and the king? Like, he's just like boasting about himself to make himself feel good again because this is what matters most to him this is his idol and so he's back now on a high but then verse 13 is a low yet all this is worth nothing so long as i see mordecai the jew sitting at the king's gate despite all that he recounts he can't get over again this one thing it's like going through highs lows highs lows because this one person dishonors him the first symptom of idolatry in Haman's life, and really one of the symptoms that we see when we have idols in our lives, is that it makes us emotionally unstable. It makes us go high and low. Right? It makes and breaks our days. Haman describes for us that one symptom. He is like a boat in a sea, rising and falling, tossing and turning based on the waves around him. And whether it's a need for us to be honored like Haman, or whether our idols are the love of money, the need for power, the desire to have comfort and luxury, we will find that we are emotionally unstable like Haman when these are our idols. When they're taken from us, we will hit lows. When we get a bit more of it, we will go high. When they're threatening in our lives, we'll feel anxious. That's one of the symptoms that we can be sure that we have idols in our lives. 
And so let me ask you, if you looked inside yourself, honestly, is there something in your life that can control your emotions like this? That when you have it, you're great, and when you don't have it, you feel horrible. Is there anything in your life that can make or break your day? What can provide for you your highest joys in an instant and then bring you to the lowest of sorrows or to fury? There's a great chance that that is an idol in your life, that that is so valued far more than it should be and perhaps valued more than God. For Haman, this source of being honored for him was maybe his source of satisfaction. Maybe for some of you, that idol is the source of your satisfaction, maybe your security, maybe it gives you your significance. But all those things are meant to be found in God and God alone. The Christian is a person like a boat. And there are waves that toss and turn depending on the season. The things around us change. But because we're anchored on Christ, He is my source of security, my source of significance. He is my satisfaction that though the things around us change, we aren't shaken because we are anchored on something that does not change, which is Jesus Christ. Where we can be sure of our security, our satisfaction and significance in Christ because that never changes, right? He never changes. And that is the Christian life. That is why it's important to make him most valuable above all. He doesn't change, but everything in life does. And for the immature Christian, or maybe the person who has idols in their lives, to not be anchored is to toss and turn, depending on what happens in your day. So that's the first symptom of idolatry that we see in Haman, and maybe we see in our own lives, his instability. But the second is his insatiability. Right? Idolatry is not only makes us unstable, but idols in our lives, they, they keep wanting more and more and more. Right? I, our idols can be soothed for a moment, but they're never satisfied. And so let's say um, your idol is to have like new things. And like, so you get that new thing, and you're like, oh, I'm so happy. The new, oh, I don't know, the 15 Pro, oh, so shiny, and oh, titanium. Wait, um, it's, it's, it's me. I'm, I'm not mocking anyone else. I'm mocking myself. It's the titanium, so great. Wow. And then, you know, you drop it once, it's scratched, or, you know, one year later, they announce a new thing, and you're like, oh, why this piece of junk? I hate it. And like, you're high and low, and like, it's, it, it's, it's constant, never satisfied, always wanting more. Right? If you want power, you might think that the next position up will satisfy me, but you get there and after a while you're hungry for more and more and more. That's the way it is with idols. That's the way it is with sin. And sometimes, like in the case of Haman, we don't see it being a problem until you reach a certain height or until you've fed that idol to a certain degree and then it kind of blows out of control. Right? And that's what happens with Haman. His idolatrous need to be honored was always probably there, right? even as he was growing up. And maybe at the start it felt like a good thing, because right? there were good things happening. His desire to be honored maybe made him study hard. Maybe it made him work hard. And from the outsider's perspective, you see just a person succeeding in life, doing well in work. Right? So he's climbing the ladder, and you're like, wow, Hammond, great, admirable. Maybe I should be like him. 
But when the idol is fed to a certain degree, it goes out of control. It gets too big. And then you see things that Haman does that is really out of control. The problem is our idols can't be, can't be satisfied. Only soothed for a moment. And so even when Haman has reached the pinnacle, the second most powerful person in the empire, still it's not enough. He's desiring honor. And so everyone else is bowing down to him, but that's not enough. This one person isn't. And that's enough for him to get boiled over inside because idolatry is never satisfied. It's not enough that he's second most powerful. It's not enough that everyone's bowing down to him. It's not enough that he got to have a banquet with the king and queen, not just once, but twice. It's not enough for him. He wants more. Our idols are never satisfied. And so verse 13 He says, all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. But it's incredible. Despite everything he's obtained, and he's just talked about it to his friends, that he still wants more. It reminds me of that quote from Alexander the Great. Oh, it's attributed to him. Um, It was said that when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, He wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. He wept because there's no more. He had so much and yet he wanted more. And I think that's kind of what idolatry is. We just want more. The only solution that his wives and friends can come up with, verse 14, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. That's about 23 meters high. Let's make a gallows so that in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. And most likely this is like a stake. Not, not that he's going to be hanged, but that after he's killed, they'll, they'll put him up on the top of it so people can see and be like, oh, Mordecai, he's a bad man. Haman, wow, so great, right? Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. Now on one hand, it's kind of sweet that his wife has got his back. But she's very scary. It's kind of scary on that. It's just, uh, like, how horrible is it? Well, but, you know, maybe the wife knew this, uh, this is the only way that her husband would be satisfied. You're not going to talk him out of this. She's lived with him long enough to know that the only way to satisfy him is to get this guy killed. Kill this guy. He's already going to get all the Jews killed. They're already going to die. He's already made that happen. It's going to happen about 10 months later or something. But still, it's not satisfied. He needs to hang this specific person. But again, that's idolatry. We might soothe it for a moment, but it's never satisfied. It's like a beast that we feed. It gets bigger, and we've got to feed it. It gets bigger, and we've just got to feed it. That's idolatry. And when we pause and think about it, it's shocking and sad to think about how much his need for honor controlled his life. His decisions, his actions, his idolatry is constantly needing more and more. And so it's really directing where his life is going. It's so consumed and controls him that he wants to wipe out a whole ethnicity and to even murder this one man. You can imagine it's keeping him awake at night. It's making him make poor decisions. Maybe it's getting in the way of his work and life because it's distracting him. And it will eventually lead to a spectacular fall. You know, for the Christian, 
Idolatry is not just bad because we love it too much, or because it distracts us from God, or because it displeases God. These are all true, but it meets us on a personal daily level because it's never ending. We always want it just a little bit more. And in that place, it really controls our lives, actions and decisions. And maybe you can look back on your life and you see that how your need or love for something has determined maybe what you study or where you work or where you live or you know, big decisions that you make like your marriage. Right? Our idols control us because they are so insatiable. And so is there something in your life that because you love it so much and value it so much, that if you reflect on it, it's actually controlled your actions and decisions. That you realize has been a key driving force, that this thing has sat on the driver's seat of your life rather than God. And quite possibly, that is an idol in your life. These are the two symptoms that we see in Haman's life. His um, instability and his insatiability. That's symptoms of idolatry. But these two things lead to this result, his implosion. Haman was driven so much by his idolatry that it led to his life falling apart. And when we step back and we look at what the Bible says, this is the end result for us if we pursue our idols. Our life will fall apart. It will go wrong. You know, someone might look at Haman's life and say, no, I disagree. Who cares that he has idols? Look at where it got him. Look how high it got him. He's attained the most enviable position for everyone. The king was born into his position as king. But Haman, he hustled his way all the way to the top. Again, someone might look to him and say, he's a model of success. He's, He's someone to admire, to envy and to emulate. He's like a tech entrepreneur in a Fortune 500 company. And we look at that person and say, wow, I know, I know. Like maybe he's like a little greedy or maybe he's a little angry, but look at where it got him. Maybe it's not so bad at all. And yet, what appears like wisdom and success in the eyes of the world will be revealed as folly in the end, as foolishness. In chapter 6, it takes us through the beginning of Haman's implosion, his downfall. And as surprising as it is to see Esther's rise from from a lowly place to a surprising great height as queen, Haman is just as surprising in a spectacular fall from the top to the bottom. You wouldn't expect it from Haman. He's so successful. It seems like he's so wise, and yet he has a spectacular fall. And again, this is the outcome. For anyone in this life that chases their idols, that does not make God the number one, love and value. Now, we won't read all of chapter 6, but chapter 6 is like different things all start coming into play. It's like that movie Crash. I don't know if you've seen Crash or you know those movies where they're like different storylines and then they all come together. This is like one of those moments. So verse 1 to 3, we see that the king, coincidentally, he can't sleep. I don't know why. Had too much coffee that day or something like that. Can't sleep. Coincidentally, he goes, I'm going to do some light reading. Let's get the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, read out to me. Now, this book is the book where it lists everything that someone has done for the king that's good. 
She's like, hmm, what should I do? I'll get that read out to me. I don't know why. Coincidentally, they read the part where it talks about Mordecai. And he hears that Mordecai saved his life. He foiled the assassination attempt that happened earlier. But Mordecai was not rewarded. And he realizes this. Right? So then we see verse 4 and 9. Haman's out in the outer courts. He's come to um, tell the king, can we kill Mordecai? He spent his whole night probably thinking about Mordecai. I want to kill him. I want to kill him. I want to kill him. The king spent his night thinking about Mordecai. I should reward him. I should reward him. I should reward him. Right? It's ironic, right, that these two people are coming together. And so Haman's there wanting to tell the king, let's kill Mordecai. And the king hears that Haman's there. And he says, or he probably, he probably thinks to himself, he's the best person to ask what I should do for Mordecai. Like, he has no idea he wants to kill Mordecai. How should I bless Mordecai? Let's call Haman in. So he calls Haman in and he asks him, how should we bless Mordecai? How should we honor him? And yet he words it in a way that's very vague. He says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Why so vague? Right? Coincidentally, he's like super vague. But Haman, again, so in love with himself, so self-centered, he thinks the king obviously is talking about me. <laughs> he's like... Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Oh, it's talking about him. So Haman's being so self-centered, he doesn't even stop to say, let me clarify who you're talking about. He's like, oh, it's me, right? And so then he starts in verse 7 to 9, listing all these rewards. And again, a person who wasn't so in need of honoring themselves, right, wasn't like hungry to be honored, might have said, oh, he's going to bless me. Don't worry about it. Let's just have dinner. Like, that's what a person would do. But in his idolatry, he starts listing these, these really crazy things. He wants robes that the king has worn. He wants the king's horse. And he wants a crown. And again, this is his desire to be elevated. He can't be king, but maybe at least I'll dress up like him and ride his horse and have a crown. And then he says, get one of the king's most noble officials. And that person should bring it to, to, to me, he's thinking. Don't get any servant. Get a high noble official so everyone will know, wow, it's a noble official who's going to dress me and put me on the horse. And this is going to be important later. And then he says, and be, let, let that person be paraded around the city, on the horse, in the robe, with the crown, in front of everyone. And that noble official should proclaim, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. That's what he wants. Publicly honored in the eyes of everyone. And ironically, in a very comedic way, we read verse 10. The king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so too, Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Right? How ironic is this? It's like kind of comedy in a way. You know, how shocking it is that the king would honor Mordecai. But even more than that, he tells Haman to be that high noble official, right? Because Haman demands a high noble official. You'll be that high noble official. So Haman goes and he has to dress Mordecai himself. He puts Mordecai on the horse and then Haman is the one parading the city saying, Thus shall it be done to the man the king honors. Right? Haman has to say that to Mordecai. And his life is begin to spiral out of control. It's begin to fall apart. And really, it's only the beginning. Next week, it's going to get worse. 
You know, last week we saw how Esther was a person who anchored her life on God and everything changed in her life. She really kind of uh, rose to, to be who God wanted her to be. She didn't get death. She received life. She wasn't treated as a criminal, but as royalty. And she found courage and freedom that she did not have before. Haman is a person who does the opposite. He's a person who does not anchor his life on God, but on himself. And we will find later on, instead of getting life, he gets death. And he who was really royalty, second from the top, he will become a criminal. And rather than finding freedom, he will be taken away and put to death. These are the two choices that really are before each and every one of us. Will we choose to pursue our idols like Haman did? Not love God, love these other things? Or will we choose to love God and make Him the most important thing in our lives? For the Christian, it means coming to God through Jesus Christ, believing He lived and died for us, or anchor our life and faith on Christ, and then live for God. Will we do that? That life for us, the Scriptures say, promises life. We'll be treated as children of God, royalty. We'll find freedom. But the Scriptures promise the life apart from God, the life that pursues our own honor or comfort or riches or power, will not lead to our good fortune. Someone might look enviably at someone like Haman, who lives without consideration of God, Haman seems to be so successful and prosperous. Haman seems to be living his best life. Haman doesn't have to be like a Christian, busy at church on Sunday. Haman doesn't have to have you know, these conservative stances on these hot topics that everyone's talking about and then be you know, disliked at work. Haman doesn't have to live without consequence. Haman can live for himself. Haman doesn't have to sacrifice or be gentle or turn the other cheek. We might look to Haman and say, that's the life I want to live. That seems like wisdom. But that life is foolishness in the end. And the life that seems foolish in the eyes of the world, the life we try to live, is the wise life. The life of sacrifice. The life of standing firm on Christian beliefs. The, stand on, the, the life that tries to fight for the, the biblical ethics and morals. That life is a life that leads to life. Haman's outcome should not be surprising to us. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Esther's life was the wise one, and that is the life that we are to model. Paul told the church in Corinth, the word of the cross, right, the message of Jesus dying on the cross to save us from our sins, And the call for us to then follow him, that word is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Whether you call yourself a Christian today or not, can you see the symptoms of idolatry in your life? Do you see idolatries? instability, how it controls your emotions, how it makes or breaks your day? Do you see idolatry's insatiability, how its desire for more is controlling your actions and your decisions? If so, turn from your idol, repent of them, give them to God, and ask that God would help you to make Him 
number one in your life. Most valuable to be the only God that you will follow. And if you do, you'll find life and you'll find freedom. But if we continue to pursue the other path, it will lead to death. If you're not a Christian today and you want to dig deeper into what a relationship with God looks like, I encourage you to speak to a Christian friend and I encourage you to ask them um, to tell you about Jesus. Right? We're in the Old Testament, so you know, we, we, we try to put Jesus in there, but it's, it's not the whole of the sermon. But Jesus really is the heart of our faith. Ask them who Jesus is and what he has done for you. But for everyone else, let's consider our idols. Let's close our eyes and let's pray. And at this time, it's just an invitation to look inward and reflect and to ask God to reveal to us if there are idols in our lives, little small gods that we love more than we should, little small gods that are the source of you know, my, my security, the source of me feeling happy in life, the source of me feeling like I'm, I'm good enough or I'm loved enough. Look at the things that control your emotions. Look at the things that control your actions. And if you find something that you love too much, would you surrender it to God today? God, I live for you. You are worth more than anything else. I surrender all at your feet and I want to follow after you. Let's make that our prayer, Kingsway. Let's pray.